you know, you have to have some levity. This is Rhode Island, right? So I once uh, was taking care of uh, the wife of uh, a big-time guy on Federal Hill. And uh, we were leaving the patient's room, and my mentor goes to me, looks me in the eye and says, there's two ways this could turn out. Either we get a Rolex each, or we're found in the Providence River with cement shoes. <laughs> and... Uh, Everything turned out okay. I, I didn't get the Rolex. I didn't get the cement shoes. So, um, and you just have to take it all in stride. As we've seen many times on this podcast, being a doctor is a full-time job. Chronic conditions are fickle, and they don't restrict themselves to wreaking havoc only during business hours. The best doctors don't mind answering those out-of-hours texts and emails. Sometimes they even call in to check on a patient they haven't heard from in a while. Dr. Go is a nephrologist and an associate professor of medicine at Brown University. He founded Rhode Island Hospital's kidney transplant program in 1996, and he continues to lead the program to this day. His patient, Caroline, tells us how Dr. Go's frank approach to the relationship creates the clear communication necessary to keep her healthy and preserve her quality of life. The feeling is echoed by her partner, LJ. I'm Viknish Kasturi. And I'm Alex Homer. And this is Back of the Chart. Caroline was first diagnosed with diabetes when she was eight. Over the years, she had progressive issues and began seeing a nephrologist in addition to her endocrinologist. As her creatinine levels, a measure of kidney function, kept getting worse and worse, her nephrologist finally referred her to Dr. Go at the kidney transplant program. Okay, so I had been following the nephrologist for approximately a year. At the point at which he said to me, I'm going to refer you to Dr. Go. And I believe if I'm going back that far, that Dr. Go called me at least twice at my office. The third time he called was more memorable, only because it was a little bit more like, you better come in, um, and I need to see you. And it's one of those situations where I don't think the situation was explained to me as to how serious it was, but I think Dr. Go knew from the uh, blood work that he had been receiving and probably the discussion that he had with my nephrologist as to what the situation was. I also remember it being approximately one week before Valentine's Day because LJ and I were going to go away. And I remember saying to Dr. Go, um, can I come and see you after that weekend? And he my said response. yes. <laughs> you said yes, but you better come in. So once I sat down, I knew in a way that I was in trouble of some sort, like that there was something bad happening. Um, so obviously my, my parents are with me and um, we were all sitting and discussing what the issues were. And... Dr. Go was very calm. He was just very matter-of-fact. I just had a sense that because of the doctor who sent me to him and because of the, his mannerisms and the way that he was explaining everything to me that I, I knew I was in good hands from the first day. I remember the visit. Caroline was the eyes like doe and the headlights sort of kind of look. And so we're going through this and... Uh, we're approaching the need for kidney replacement therapy, and we're going through the options available to us. And the preference being to get a preemptive kidney transplant versus spending a single day on dialysis. And at that point, you're saying, you know, do people understand the gravity of this situation? Frequently not, 
But uh, over the years, then the referring nephrologists make it more clear that this is where we stand, this is where we're headed. And I think that's probably evolved over time. But we talked about it, right? We did talk about it, but as you said, I don't think at that point when I was sent to you, it was not registering until we started having discussion about options. And that's kind of when, you know, that's when the shock starts and it has still hasn't set in and you still are kind of like looking for the easiest way out at the moment. Well, let me clarify. There's five stages of chronic kidney disease, the fifth stage meaning the end stage. And you have two options, either you sustain a patient with dialysis or kidney transplantation. Dialysis is where you go to dialysis unit three times a week to get your blood purified through a machine, which is sustainable. But if you look at the whole range of dialysis patients, if you start 100 patients on dialysis today, 50% are no longer alive in five years. Okay? So the option being transplantation, oh, how many? 20 years later? 20. 20 years of transplantation is the favorite option because it is um, clearly has a survival benefit and it more mimics the natural physiology of the human body because it's functioning 24 7. And that's the reason why people referred early before you need ever need kidney replacement therapy through dialysis. So that was a long time ago. I mean, things have evolved to the point where we say, you know, refer to us early because I need to prepare people early as, as opposed to waiting till kind of six months before we need to do this. So we, we, we have social workers, we have psychiatrists, we have everybody to prepare um, the patients to go through this process. Yesterday, in fact, we had a nine-year-old girl who was supposed to get called in for a kidney transplant. We could not find a nine-year-old girl because the only number we were given was the phone number of the grandfather. Grandfather could not be found. Why? Because he was out of the country. And we actually had to call the province police to find a nine-year-old girl in her school. And uh, we had to bring the, the kid over. So the role of the social worker is to make sure the home environment is safe for us to move forward with this. Because it's easy enough to put a kidney transplant in, but without proper follow-up, the kidney is doomed to failure. So you have to make sure all social structures are in place, that the kid is going to take their medicines, that someone's going to bring the kid in to take, uh, to get her blood work, to fill prescriptions, to make sure that the person takes the medicines, um, and that sort of thing. And the psychiatrist is there to make sure they're in the proper frame of mind to accept this kidney transplant. So you don't want to get in a situation where none of these things are set in place. The most problematic people are the kids, the young 20-year-olds who think that they're, like you guys, whose uh, lives are invincible and they can do whatever they want. And they tell me they stop taking their medicines because they know their bodies really well and they know their body won't reject. And um, 
I have to sit down and say, listen, we have one crack at this. Your best chance to have a successful kidney transplant is for the first kidney transplant. If you need a second or third, it doesn't work quite as well. You have one job is to keep this kidney going for as long as you can. And sometimes it resonates clearly and sometimes it doesn't. And uh, I enlist the help of my nurses and so forth. So you need to call this guy weekly to make sure he's taking his medicines. Whatever it takes, bring him in, help him out. And once we get through a critical period, maybe he sees the light. Um, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But, you know, that's part of our selection process. If I knew from the very start that this kid is not going to take their medicines, then we're going to say, you know what? I think we're going to wait a little while. You may spend some time on dialysis um, until you're ready to do this. Caroline's entire family is tested for compatibility. Blood types need a match, and ideally, there's a genetic match as well, which would mean that less immunosuppressant drug would be needed. And her mother and brother both matched. In the meantime, Caroline underwent peritoneal dialysis. This means that she didn't have to go to the dialysis center three times a week. Instead, four times a day, she pumped a bag of salt water into her abdomen, waited for the waste products to diffuse into that fluid, and then drained the fluid out. So there's between a lot of processes to be done at that point and a lot of steps to go through there's also the whole am i gonna live through this because is everything going to be done in time um am i going to be able to handle the treatment am i going to be able to handle the three times a week or the three times a day no matter which decision that you make so it's a life-changing moment um and you just go through every single gamut of emotions that there are I just remember being really, really, really tired because it does take a toll on you uh, because it's not your actual body cleaning you out. It's bags of um, salt (laughs) pulling out all of the impurities in your body. Um, So I remember explaining and sitting down with my parents and my family saying how tired I was and I wasn't sure how much longer I could go on the way that I was. So my brother was just like, okay, let's do this. The day of my surgery, I was coming out of anesthesia and I was in ICU. And Dr. Go and Dr. Morrissey, who was my surgeon, was standing beside my bed and they were talking about the donuts at... El Forno. <laughs> and they, were, they saw my eyes open, and they were like, have you ever had the donuts <laughs> at El Forno? <laughs> and I think I will never, ever forget that as long as I live, because that was a moment in which I was just like, wait, I'm going to cry. And then I'm like, no, I'm not going to cry. I'm laughing, because these guys are talking about donuts. <laughs> as I wake up from this from this surgery. <laughs> you know, part of that's to let you know that we've done this before. It's like... Uh... <laughs> exactly. I was like, they're so relaxed. And like, now I'm laughing. And it just, it just, it just puts you in a different mood. Um, and you, you kind of knew that I guess everything is going to be okay. Like, because, <laughs> because they're talking about donuts. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Goh cares for his patients like he would family. Checking in on patients is nominally about making sure the transplanted organ works for as long as possible, but it ends up being more than that. It's about caring for a patient's quality of life and taking ownership for a patient's health. 
being there to help even when the issue doesn't directly relate to the kidney itself. You know, I see my patients frequently and they become, quite frankly, Caroline's like my sister, right? So sometimes I just check in because I haven't heard how things are. And uh, that's usually a good thing. Yes. (laughs) So um, because if I haven't seen blood work in a while, I'm, I'm always left to think, are you taking your medicines or not? And are you taking care of yourself? So the motives are to, to create the best outcomes possible, and, and I want them to live the most quality-driven life as possible. And nothing, I think, gives me more pleasure than to see my patients go back to work and live a productive life. And she's, Caroline's always driven to do that. Um, well, I, I tripped in a very gracious way, and uh, my foot came out of my shoe very weird. Um, so it basically technically bent in half. I was treated for a fracture incorrectly so uh, what I actually had was charco foot which is something that can only be obtained with um, slight neuropathy and being a diabetic so um, at the point at which they were treating me for this just the fracture um, I was put in an incorrect boot and an incorrect brace that rubbed up against my foot and basically tore it apart so that turned into a non-healing wound So at the point at which that doctor said to me, you know what, I don't think I can do anything else for you. I think you need to go somewhere else. And at that note, I was just like, oh my goodness, where am I gonna go? And reached out to Dr. Go and guess what? He knows a gentleman who just does Charco (laughs) to put me on the right track um, and basically completely healed um, and walking again. So um, that's how that story turns out. <laughs> As a kidney transplant doctor, or you, you could be a liver transplant doctor, and you know you, you form these strong bonds with your patients, and most of the time your patients will see other doctors and say, I have to check it out with my kidney doctor or my liver doctor before I take any medicines. And so they end up calling you and so forth. Um, and to the point where they frequently say, I don't see the reason why I need to see my primary care doctor because I see you more. And I say, no, 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 please, you need to see them still um, because God knows I'm not going to be checking your uh, uh, prostate out for you and, and other <laughs> things like that. Um, but it's because we see our patients so frequently and they come to us for all reasons that there's like there's that strong bond that develops. It's not just with me, it's like with the whole team of our providers. I mean, you know, Caroline has my phone number and she will either, I think I, I'm more worried when LJ texts me <laughs> uh, because I know something's up because we, that means she can't. So um, that kind of gets my ears raised. And uh, so, um, I mean, there's been several instances over the few years when, you know, you have to understand when transplant patients get uh, infected, they get they get sick very quickly, and you can't really wait another day or so. So, I mean, you, you should respond. And Like, I've got a 
pretty large team based on the people that I go to. And if my endocrinologist says, well, you know what, I'm going to change your um, your blood pressure medication, I, I'll say, okay, thank you, give me the prescription, and then I will call Dr. Go, and I will say, based upon what I'm taking now, is this okay for my kidney? That's my first and foremost question. Like, no matter what I'm going to do, I always check it with Dr. Go, only because we need to preserve this to go as long as it can. And from my previous experience with being scared out of my mind that I didn't have one. Because when you're on the list and you're on peritoneal dialysis, you don't have a kidney, basically. So if you stop doing peritoneal dialysis, you don't have a life. So being in that position, now I know. And then, of course, my brother, who is my hero, for even stepping up to give me this gift that you can never, ever, ever thank somebody for. I don't want to waste that gift that he gave to me. And I work with him, so I see him every day. And basically, I just want to show him and prove to him that I'm taking care of it and that it's going to last as long as it can. Another thing to realize is the role doctors play in the community. They're regular people leading regular lives. Dr. Go and Caroline used to go to the same church. They live in the same neighborhood and run into each other at the grocery store. They have similar interests in wine tasting, sports, and celebrities. But in some sense, doctors are always wearing the white coat. It's interesting because Rodan is such a small state, and um, there are three or four people in the same church that actually are patients of mine. Um, if I have a particularly religious individual, I, I, I try to use that to help the patient out. And, you know, some of my patients will say, I'm going to put my faith in God's hands. And I say, hold on, I, I'm getting a message from God. I am his instrument. He told me I'm his instrument. Follow my directions. <laughs> and so, you know, we, we kind of play that game. Um, but when a lot of the patients or some of the patients are really um, religious, I actually, I think that's to their advantage because they have more of an inner peace, you know, whether it's rationalizing, rationalizing that this is God's plans or what. But I said, you know, God meant for you to have this kidney going for as long as you can, so you better follow every damn thing I say. Just knowing that Dr. Go or someone like him is active in the community, and you know there's a good chance you're going to see him, it, it provides a certain comfort level because you know that, you know, that's that's like a built-in check-in process. Like, we'll see each other in church. How's everything going? What's going on? You know, just a few g words of greeting or a few sentences. And, it, it you know, just to keep the flow of information going. You know, it's... It feels, like I said, there's a certain comfort level knowing that, that he is available. It's just luck, basically, that we ended up at this, the same church in the same location. You know, it's it, like he said, as LJ said, it's just nice to see him. I mean, I, if you were at a different church, I'm not sure if I would run to Warwick to go to church. <laughs> But because we still was, see each other at Eastside so Marketplace, right? Yeah. Right, that's yeah. right. We see each other there. Helps, but I think even if we didn't have any interests at all, Dr. Go would still act the same way. You know, genuine and, and caring. I think that's just his nature. 
I think, you know, to some extent, it's, it's teachable. I mean, uh, I've had a few mentors in my life who I w- wanted to, to try to copy. And there is, you know, um, not necessarily the most brilliant people, but, you know, the way they handle themselves during different situations. And you say, well, th- that went really well. Um, so I think, you know, the goal or the role of the older physicians is to try to set a, a good example. I mean, uh, I may not be always the most politically correct, uh, but I do, I always, my my bottom line when I'm like rounding with my team is like, you have to do the right thing and you can't just blow it off. You have to do the right thing. You can't go home until the work is done. So that's kind of the motto that we, we have. As you get older, you become more frank and people really actually appreciate that you don't pull punches this is the way it's got to be or else it's not going to work as you get to know your patients for years and years uh, you get little cues that when you see them on follow-up that you've lost weight or whatever the case may be you know i have an 80 year old patient who's lost weight um he lost his wife and i'm thinking so how are you keeping yourself busy? Um, that sort of thing. And it's not all about, I mean, the kidney function's fine, but you know, you still want to make sure family's involved and so forth. So it's, it's much easier if you get to know the patient for kind of many, many years and know everything. For whatever reason, we end up knowing about, I mean, I know your family and I, the way that I was, my family is very, very close. And um, so everybody gets involved. Um, it was like, if you take me on, you take my whole family on. So I think, you know, for those people who want to go in medicine, it's like a fundamental choice here. It's like, do you want to take care of patients or do you want to have these long lasting relationships? You choose certain fields. If you want to be a one and done, like take out someone's gallbladder, then it's a one and done, and you don't have to ever see them again. Um, so it, it, that's you know, that's part of choosing your career path in medicine. Um, transplantation is unique because uh, they're yours for life. I mean, you know, whether you be a lung transplant, liver transplant, heart transplant, your goal is to have the best outcomes and you're going to necessarily fall in for life because, quite frankly, as transplanters, we trust ourselves more than we trust trust other people. And I think the same way with the patients, they, they trust your word more than anybody else. You know, you can't take yourself too seriously. And I think the worst part is if you, you can't have too much of an ego because there's always someone smarter than you. That's, that's clear and obvious. And you have to like give kudos to people um, who are really that uh, that bright and knowledgeable. I think a lot of it has to do with Dr. Go as a person, you know, as the the fact that I think he got into this profession because he cares, his confidence in what he does, and his knowledge. I think all of that wrapped together is evident in his practice and how long he's been doing what he's doing. Um, so I, I think there are a lot of different um, characteristics that go into a doctor. I just don't think you go to school and you come out with a piece of paper that says you're a doctor. I think um, 
I don't think they have classes on bedside manner, and I don't think they have classes on how to be a nice person, and I don't think they have classes on how, how to care. Uh, perhaps they should <laughs> sometimes. There are specific people that I could tell you that should take it, but um, Dr. Go is not one of them. Dr. Go, Caroline, LJ, thank you. And thank you for listening. Next time, we'll have a story that'll really knock your socks off in our season finale. Back of the Chart is produced and hosted by Alex Homer and Fiknesh Kasturi. Tweet at us at Back of the Chart or find us online at backofthechart.weebly.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you love this episode, make sure you leave a five-star review on iTunes. It helps new listeners find the show. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to faculty and staff at Brown University for making this possible. <laughs>